Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is music from Michael A. Levine for Resident Evil Biohazard. It's the theme for the game, and I'm sure you'll recognize the melody and most of the words to Go Tell Aunt Rhody. That song you likely learned as a kid has a lengthy history in several countries, including Japan, where it's called Musunde, as you'll hear from Michael. Michael didn't score the rest of the game, Resident Evil Biohazard. He wrote and arranged the theme song. Either way, you've definitely heard Michael's music before, either in ads like Kit Kat or the TV show Cold Case or the choir version of Spider Pig from the Simpsons movie. Also, Michael composed two concertos for strings. One features musical saw and the other features pedal steel guitar. I definitely was not going to pass up an opportunity to talk about those pieces, and you'll get to hear some of both. So occasionally when I'm starting an interview, it kind of just starts on accident before we say, okay, go. And that's pretty much what happened here. We were just chatting about our backgrounds, you know, before the interview started. He asked me where I did my undergrad. Well, I did my undergrad in Boulder, Colorado. That's where my parents met. Well, they were in the Navy during World War II, and believe it or not, of course, things being what they are with how money gets distributed by the military, there was a naval base in Boulder, Colorado, and it was basically at the university, and they were learning Japanese uh, because they were both good at languages and they needed more translators. So my mom was then shipped to Washington, D.C. to translate intercepts, and my dad was shipped to the Pacific, and he ended up being in Japan as part of the occupation and became the translator for a a Japanese admiral who designed the Yamato, which was the last battleship ever built and sunk in combat. And so the Cold War was heating up, and they wanted to know all the secrets of that, and he became the guy's translator. Well, the guy, Kitayama, the the, uh, admiral, was a... uh, He spoke like seven languages and didn't really need my dad, but they became good pals. And uh, my dad got very interested in Japan, became a scholar of Japanese labor relations. And some years later, when my parents were there and he was researching a book, I was born there. Yeah, I saw that on your your site, and I was wondering how that happened. So how old were you then when you moved back and to Illinois, is what I imagine— I was an infant, but then we did go back to Japan again when I was five, and then we went back again when I was 13. So I spent a couple of years in total, but more than that, I grew up with Japanese cultural things in the house and a lot of Japanese Mm. people in the house because of my dad's work. And so consequently, yeah, when in the Go Tell Aunt Rhodey slash Musun day, I went, hey, I got an idea. Well, you must have a unique perspective on Japanese culture as a result of growing up with it in that manner, with your dad working with it and having people in the house and I'm sure going to events and things like that. That must have been pretty interesting to learn about it that way. Well, Japan is a wonderful but highly xenophobic culture. And Mm. quite frankly, I will always be a gaijin, even if I were 
fully fluent, which I am not. Even though I'm an Edoko, which means somebody born in Tokyo, I will always be a, a gaijin, which is a foreigner. But nonetheless, I find there are certain things like the Japanese visual aesthetic really appeals to me, the whole mm-hmm. architectural aesthetic. It was interesting, and this relates to the Resident Evil game, is that I don't think the guys at Capcom, who were all Japanese, who we were dealing with, were aware that Musunde had an American counterpoint. They thought it was a traditional Japanese song. And most Japanese people do, because they learned the song when they were in kindergarten, and it's this innocent, charming little tune. And I think they were kind of surprised and excited when they found out that it had American roots and, in turn, European roots. Well, let's talk about that song. Tell me tell me all about that traditional song and, and working with it for the, for the game. Well, you know, I try to do a little research after the fact. I'm not a musicologist, but we know that there was that the melody was used in a French opera in the mid-18th century by, you know, not one of their greats, one of the secondary composers. And it probably was already a folk song. So its actual origins probably go back before that. But like I said, I'm not a musicologist, can't tell you that for sure. But so that's, you know, 1750-ish. And then it found its way to England and then from there to the United to what was, you know, wasn't the United States yet. And it got new lyrics every place it went. And somehow there was this story about Aunt Rhody and a dead goose here. And so the old gray goose is dead isn't terribly evocative, but everybody's dead worked pretty well for the game. So I got excited about that and then also wrote a a verse that was specifically based on the game. So how did you get involved in in writing and, you know, arranging that song? I hear you stumbling for the right verb because it is a little bit of writing and a little bit of arranging. Yeah. I had produced a version of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, the old Tears for Fears mm-hmm. happy party song mm-hmm. with Lucas Cantor, who was originally my assistant, and then we ended up producing things together. And the singer on it was a then unknown young teenager from New Zealand named Lord. Welcome to your life. There's no turning back. Between the time we recorded it and the time that Hunger Games Catching Fire came out, which was the first time the world heard it, her career exploded. And so that no doubt helped the fortunes of that production. She also did a a wonderful job on the vocal. Mm -hmm. And then it ended up being licensed by everyone and their cat for trailers and so forth, including (laughs) Assassin's Creed Unity, which was probably my favorite use of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what, I don't know for that for a fact, but I think that's what got the attention of the the people from Capcom. Gotcha. And they contacted my agent who... Uh, one of my agents is Japanese and is, you know, he's a Japanese American and speaks fluent Japanese and, and equally important, understands Japanese culture, which is very important because there really are different 
conventions and it's easy to make a misstep, even somebody who has the background I've got. Now, didn't you work with your daughter in this too? I absolutely did. Well, my daughter is technically my stepdaughter. I feel like she's my daughter. Sure. And in fact, we call each other Pops and Dots, which is really annoying to to people who like serious (laughs) stuff. But she's a wonderful singer, and she did the original guide track for the Lord track that we did, and then did all the background vocals. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, she's still the only person other than Lord to sing harmony on a Lord track. So (laughs) she did a wonderful job with that, and then she did the guide track for this as well. And, you know, the Capcom guys really liked it. She has a kind of beautiful, innocent kind of voice. Mm -hmm. And then they decided, I think, that they really wanted something that was a little edgier. Mm -hmm. And so that's when we started looking for singers, and we were fortunate enough to find Jordan Rain, who I think is (laughs) another singer from New Zealand who Mm. is, uh, I think, terrific and did a wonderful job on a lot more invasive quality than Mariana. But Mari, as the Americanized version of her name, she and I did a record together recently called Samira and the Wind. You can Mm. find it on CD Baby. And Samira and the Wind is our little joke because it's Samira is her middle name and the wind is Levine, Levin, the Mm. wind. You know, mm-hmm. a little cross-language joke there. Uh, but <laughs> but the album is not funny. I mean, it's, it's all very beautiful and sort of haunting singer-songwriter stuff. When I'm lost, you'll be my guide The stars, the waves, the wind, the tide She did actually sing all the vocals that Jordan doesn't sing on this recording for mm-hmm. Ann Rohde. How do you find singers from New Zealand? How did how does that happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was another one of those things where I'm on a Facebook page that there are a lot of composers on here in LA, and mostly LA based, a few from out of town. And I put up a, a little notice saying, and I thought I was being very, very discreet. I said, you know, I'm I'm recording, I'm looking for a singer who has kind of a an intense vocal quality, or so I don't remember how I worded it, but mm-hmm. I didn't say what the project was. I don't even think I said it was a video game. I can't remember. It was, I thought, quite obscure. Well, four hours later, I get a panicked call. The client saw your post, you got to take it down because they think, you know, it's going to blow the secret of the game. <laughs> so I did. And I mean, I don't know how many hours passed between when I posted it went up, but, but l- much less than a day. In that time, The word got out, and I ended up getting a lot of submissions from people, including people from overseas, because fortunately for Jordan, she had a representative here in L.A. who happened to be somebody on that board and Hmm. happened to pass it on to her, and she sent us a demo, and we thought it was really good, and sent it to the clients, and they thought it was really good, and she worked with us on it, and as I said, I'm, I'm very pleased with the result. I was raised in a deep a with no parole. Often on our show, we're talking to people who have scored games, like full, full-on the, the deal. But I love your background. You've done some really incredibly successful ad campaigns. One, two, one, two, three, four. Give me a break, give me a break, break me off. 
You've also done uh, a lot of TV. I was a big Cold Case fan. I remember that show very well. And, uh, you know, you've done some really interesting things, not least of which are the concerti that you've written. And I, I've got to ask you about this because these pieces are, are both really kind of wonderful. So uh, you wrote a concerto for steel guitar, pedal steel and orchestra, mm-hmm. and a concerto for musical saw and orchestra. And I would just love it if you would tell me a little bit about why and the inspiration for, for those pieces. Well, I've always been kind of a weirdo outsider, and uh, I was embarrassed about it as a kid. And the older I've gotten, the more I've learned to own it. And uh, the instrumentation for those two pieces were both instruments that I thought were wonderful and evocative and their potential had only been tapped a little, little bit. Each one there's a different story for. In the pedal steel case, when I was in college, I worked my way through college in part by playing in country western bands. I played fiddle and harmonica and some keyboards in country western bands uh, and really bad guitar. (laughs) And I was just fascinated by the pedal steel because it was something I didn't play, but there is an ability of the pedal steel to go from things that are very, very articulate, like a, a guitar, to something that enormously liquid like strings or voice it has this chameleon-like quality that is really only, for the most part, been used in country music. And, uh, and you know, a few other people, like uh, Thomas Newman has experimented with it as a sound design element in his scores and a few others. But for the most part, it's in this country ghetto. So I wanted to write a piece that both tipped the hat to the roots of the piece, but at the same time was harmonically challenging and borrowed from vocabularies other than country music. And it was performed by a guy named Gary Morse, who's a terrific player out of Nashville. And we did it with the Nashville Chamber Orchestra. Not to give the saw short shrift, but Dale Stuckenbrook, who is the man who the piece was written for, who's a, a wonderful violinist in, in New York and somebody I often hired as a concert master on dates where I was I needed a, a string section. Mm-hmm. And Dale doubled on saw. In fact, he played the saw from the same time he played the violin, which was age four. So he is one of the world's great virtuosos on the saw. And there are things that he also has absolute pitch and a Mm -hmm. few other skills. So there were things that I I did in the piece that, quite frankly, most saw players could not do. It requires, among other things, the ability to 
hear very accurately quarter tones. And so Dale could do that. And then as a result of that, I got to be my, one of my first friends when I moved to Los Angeles now uh, 18 years ago was a guy named David Weiss, who was the top saw player in LA because he got very interested. And he also had perfect pitch. And uh, he was an oboist. He was wow. the principal oboist of the Philharmonic here. And David is sadly no longer with us, but he did teach me how to surf. That piece is remarkable as well, and the scoring is unique. You know, you've got the kind of the halves of the orchestra tuned a quarter step apart, correct? That's right. Uh, I mean, it's just strings in that case. It's just saw and strings, unlike the steel pieces in actual orchestra. It's actually meant for an orchestral size string section. Mm-hmm. The piece has never actually been performed by as many people as I imagined it should be. This is kind of absurd, but it has 26 independent string parts. They're written in both our normal pitch universe, which has 12 notes, Mm -hmm. and then this kind of alternative pitch universe, which is all the notes that are a quarter step between the notes we normally hear. Mm -hmm. And so essentially for the people who have perfect pitch, you have to put them with the true pitch people because, you know, they'll look at the page and they'll get completely confused if they have to hear it a quarter step away. And so all the people with good relative pitch go on the other side. That's really fascinating. I mean, it, of course, reminded me of Penderecki and all the work that he did, uh, like the piece Emanations and things along those lines where where he he did some of that. You know what's fascinating is that I didn't know about emanations. I didn't know that Penderecki, I, I knew, you know, Threnody. Sure. I wasn't familiar with, he had written this chamber music. And one of the things that I decided, thinking that it was this really great breakthrough, is that when it was rehearsed, you should put the people far enough away so that they're not influenced by the other pitch universe and then move them together on each subsequent rehearsal. And I thought, mm-hmm. this is a very clever idea. Well, later when the piece was performed, was revived at one point, performed in San Francisco, the creative director of that group showed me this Pandoreski score where he said to do exactly the same thing. And I went, well, <laughs> it was interesting because it was sort of form follows function. Tell me how you ended up in L.A. and into music that way. Everybody always has such an interesting story. Yeah, you know, I often get letters from young composers sort of like, well, how do I get in? And Mm -hmm. the answer is, you know, any way you can. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a really weird story. I I was for a while, I was teaching at NYU the last couple of years. I'm going to do it again this summer. And I started collecting people's, you know, how I got in stories. And they're all just bizarre. I had started out in New York really I was playing music on the street and accompanying dance classes. But everything I did gave me tools to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, 
when you're a mu- street musician, which, by the way, is the hardest job I ever had. Oh, if you're a street musician, you have to get people's attention and get their money from them in about 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Later, when I was writing music for advertising, I realized it was the same job. <laughs> so one of the jobs that I did at that point was that I played in an Irish band for about three years, which was really a tremendous education. I love Irish music, traditional yeah. Irish music, and I learned a lot about Irish fiddling and so forth. And it, it may seem completely irrelevant to my career. And then I, I, I went on and I wrote a lot of music for advertising. But at some point, that business was changing, and I just realized I wanted a bigger canvas. So I decided I wanted to score films and moved to L.A. because I had been living in New York. And I moved to L.A. because I just felt like this is where the action was. But, you know, I got here, I didn't know anybody, and I got nowhere. And um, I did get one job in my first couple of years. I was writing country-western songs for Walker, Texas Ranger, perhaps the most dreadful television show to ever air. (laughs) Chuck Um, Norris. (laughs) But... I, I'm quite grateful because it was it was like the only paying work I got for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and I would write these. They they didn't want to license big hits, so I would get things like they would they would temp in the Dixie Chicks or something, and yep. I would have to write a song that had kind of the same vibe, but you know wasn't wasn't close enough to get sued. Right. So that was that was kind of my job. But other than that, I really was getting nowhere fast, and uh, I was living in Topanga, which is this kind of semi-rural area. Um, there was a local poetry reading on Friday night, and I asked the woman who ran it if I could bring my electric violin down and play some loops and stuff. So I did, and you know everybody else was you know reading poetry, and here I came in, and so of course it was a different thing, and it, yeah. it got quite a response. And one of the waitresses there said, "You need to meet my landlord. His name is Harry Gregson Williams." Um, <laughs> Okay, so then you go, oh, and then he met Harry and all was fine. No, of course not. Mm -mm. That never happened. But fast forward a few weeks, and I'm at a gig of a mutual friend of hers and mine, and who ends up standing next to me, Harry Gregson Williams. I said, oh, you know, Louise uh, said we should meet. And And he was very kind and chatted with me a little bit. And he said, you know, well, tell me a little bit about you. And I mentioned a few things, including, you know, the fact I'd played in an Irish band. I mean, it was that offhanded. Mm -hmm. So a couple of weeks, I gave him my card, figuring, okay, well, that's good kindling for the fireplace. (laughs) And a couple of weeks later, I get a call from him, and he says, do you really play Irish fiddle? And I said, yeah, I do. And he says, "Um, could you put together an Irish band? I said, "Uh, yeah, no problem. I knew no Irish musicians in Los Angeles. Right. I, I said... I said, so uh, when do you need it? Uh, Tomorrow. Uh, Mm. Yeah, sure. Fine. I don't know what happened leading up to that. He was scoring a film called Veronica Guerin, and he had to record all of the orchestral work in the UK because of tax reasons. They had some tax break there. But they needed some music for a couple of like source music scenes or something that was traditional uh, in, in advance. And so we needed to do it now. And it, for, it had to be under the table because otherwise it was going to be, we'd get in trouble with the tax people in the UK and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So 
that's why he turns to some weirdo he's never met, you know, I met once. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so we did the gig, it went really well. And by the way, the story is about this uh, famous Irish crusading journalist who is murdered at the end of the, the show, uh, the, the, mm. the movie, and but became a great pop hero, uh, a martyr to investigative journalism. So a few months pass, and, and I'm visiting Harry, and he said... Yeah, uh, Jerry, meaning Jerry Bruckheimer, just threw out my third attempt at the murder scene in this. Do you want to take a crack at it? Because he was <laughs> desperate at that point. So I said, sure. So I, I wrote this piece. They, Jerry had fallen in love with this Hans Zimmer temp that he couldn't have from Gladiator that had a deduk. And, of okay. course, it didn't fit at all. And poor Harry, who was, you know, brilliant, was trying to figure out what the heck he's... He, loved about it. And I finally said, well, you know, the Irish deduk is the Illin Pipes. So I wrote a piece that starts with fiddle and ends up climaxing with Illin Pipes and it's, uh, uh, and then strings accompany it. And Jerry said something encouraging like, well, that doesn't suck as bad as the others. And it went into the, the, the movie. So meanwhile, we had done this recording at Remote Control, which well was then called Media Ventures, which was Hans Zimmer's place. Mm-hmm. And I brought a CD with me, as I always did in those days. I always had some of my music. And Hans walked into the session just because he was checking out what Harry was doing. Harry was a Hans protege. And I said, well, this is probably Coles to Newcastle, but here's my CD. Now, for those who don't know what Coles to Newcastle is, Coles to Newcastle means it's, you know, a hat on a hat. It's if you're already one of the most respected composers in the world, the last thing you need is somebody else's music, it was my thinking. But actually, he took it and he said, yeah, I'll listen to it. And I figured, yeah, that, you know... You can use this for building materials or something. And honestly, mm-hmm. 999 times out of 1,000, that is what happens. Mm-hmm. But this was that one in a 1,000 times, probably because Harry was nice enough to say something about me. And Hans did actually listen to it. And I get this call on my answering machine a couple days later, and he's like, Michael, I just listened to your CD, and it's <laughs> fucking incredible. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, it's <laughs> effing okay. incredible. Of course, I just came from the dentist, and I'm really high, so... Uh, yeah, I probably you know, don't know what I'm talking about or something like that. A, you know, typical Hans humor. And so, but the long and the short is I ended up doing some freelance work, additional music for Hans and some arranging and so forth. And about a year later, I got a shot to score Cold Case through one of the people who was there at Remote. And I met with Jonathan Littman, who's the head of Bruckheimer Television. And we were spotting, it was spotting is the, the process whereby you choose what's the music and something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is going to be used in what scene. And we were spotting the murder scene of this uh, cold case episode. And he must have been pretty skeptical because I really didn't have any credits that were relevant at all other than working for Hans. And he says, you know, there is a piece of music that would be perfect for this scene. I said, oh, what is it? He says, it's, it's from a movie of Jerry's that hasn't come out yet, so you haven't seen it. I said, what's it called? And he says, Veronica Guerin. <laughs> and I, I said, what 
was the scene. And he looks at me funny like, and he goes, the murder scene. And I said, I think I can do something like that. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to episode 63 of Level with Emily Reese. You can learn more about Michael A. Levine and find links to some of his projects at patreon.com slash level. You'll see a playlist there as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at MLMusic. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Hi. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media. You can learn more at june-media.com. And remember, June is J-O-O-N.